Hello, everybody. Welcome. I'm Timothy Gartnash. I'm delighted to be chairing this session jointly with the Middle East Center and the Free Speech Debate Project based at this college. Do have a look at our website, freespeechdebate.com, which has content about issues around free speech all over the world. Um, this event on free speech in the Gulf we owe to the initiative of one of our speakers today, Nicholas McGeehan of Human Rights Watch. Human Rights Watch have just published uh, recently a very interesting and depressing report called Arab Gulf States Attempts to Silence 140 Characters. The reference to Twitter is obvious. One of them is actually interviewed, Ahmed Mansour is actually interviewed on the Free Speech Debate website before he was silenced. We're delighted to have with us Mariam al-Khawaja, who is a Bahraini human rights defender, was very much involved in the Pearl Roundabout uh, democratic protests and subsequently in activism for human rights in Bahrain. She's encountered many obstacles, to put it mildly, in her work for human rights and is now based in Denmark and very much involved in advocating for free, free, uh, human rights in, 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 in Bahrain and in, in, in the Gulf. Um, Nick McGeehan, who is actually going to speak first, is a senior researcher at Human Rights Watch working on Bahrain, Qatar and the United Arab Emirates. He has a PhD from EIU in Florence um, and was, as I say, instrumental in the preparation of this report, which anyone can find online. And finally, on my left, Dr. Toby Mattison is Sir Adam Roberts, Senior Research Fellow in the International Relations of the Middle East. Uh, if you want to identify Sir Adam Roberts, he's sitting in the front row there. And Toby is a colleague here. We're delighted to have him with us. He's a Senior Research Fellow in the International Relations of the Middle East. He's the author of a terrific book, which I recommend to all of you, called Sectarian Gulf, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, and the Arab Spring that wasn't. And he's currently working on a book on the Sunni Shia divide. We, we're going to go in order, so I think Nick is going to set the scene first for about 10, 15 minutes, then Mariam will speak, and then Toby will respond, and then we'll throw it open for questions. So please join me in welcoming the speakers today. Tim, thank you, Eugene. Um, thank you, Toby, for, for, for hosting us, and thank you all for coming. We're delighted to be I'm, I'm sorry I'm on the panel. Some of you probably came expecting Iyad el-Baghdadi. Unfortunately, Iyad wasn't able to come due to visa problems, so you've got me instead. I'll try and fill, into his, uh, fill his shoes. It's a difficult task. We brought along an article about Iyad, which is just outside from The Intercept, which I'd encourage you all to read. He's a, a fascinating and very courageous and um, very intelligent writer and activist. So, as I said, very sorry he, he can't be here. Also delighted to be here because I don't think, as a human rights organisation, we're very good at engaging with academia. I think we should do it more. I think you're a resource. Your intellect, your knowledge is something that, that we need to draw on better in the work that we do. I'm sure you're aware of the work that we do. Let me just give you a, an insight into something that happened yesterday, a couple of days ago, actually. Um, I was um, engaged in a sort of Twitter debate with the Emirates Literary Festival, the Brook Festival, which is taking place in Dubai just now, I gently suggested uh, to them that if they were going to have a talk on tolerance, that they should have a discussion in that debate about the tolerance of ideas and the tolerance of opinions. 
And the Twitter account for the Emirates Lit Literary Festival retweeted me, which I was very pleased about because this hadn't ever happened. So I started to tell everyone about this, this retweet, uh, and then suddenly somebody got in touch with me and said they've hastily uh, deleted their retweet of you. And I thought, oh, well, that's, that's disappointing. I'm just very glad I took a photo of that. So I promptly posted the photo of the retweet and asked them why they had uh, deleted it. People here are you know, composing outstanding research and, and contributing to the development of knowledge around the world. We're engaging in um, petty Twitter spats with book <laughs> festivals. But that's not, that's not all we do. You're probably aware that we, we write reports. So, so let me explain why, why we wrote this report. I started working on the UAE in 2012 at the time when they were engaged in a real crackdown, post-Arab Spring crackdown. And the focus of, the focus of this um, attack were political Islamists. And the UE was uh, trying very hard to describe this crackdown, to characterise it as something that was about stability and security and to, and to classify these people as terrorists and a threat to national security. But when you looked around what else they were doing, when you looked at the fact that bloggers were being deported, that think tanks were being shut down, that journalists were being kicked out of the country, it became very clear that what was happening was a, was a shutdown repression of free expression, done under the guise of national security in such a way as to be politically palatable to the Western states which provide the Gulf states with, with much support. And of course, it wasn't just happening in the UAE at the time. This was a regional trend. This was 2012, just a year after the Arab Spring. And what had happened in the Gulf states was these are very connected states in terms of social media and the use of smartphone technology. This uh, technology coincided with the wave of popular dissent that it began in North Africa and did ripple over into the Gulf states, most notably uh, in Bahrain, uh, which Mariam can describe a lot better than I can. Now, to the Gulf states, to the rulers of these six states, this was an existential threat to their rule, and it had to be quashed, and it had to be quashed quickly. The way they did this was they harmonised and they bolstered their legal systems. They spent millions in surveillance software and in the recruitment of, I think, what The Intercept described as an, an army of cyber warriors. That was in reference to, to the UAE. Why did they do this? This is really what the report is about. As Tim said, 140 characters was a nod to the, um, to the Twitter, to the, to the social media element of, of the age-old crackdown on free expression. In terms of the legal systems, they, they didn't really need to do much. I mean, they already had fairly repressive laws on the statute, which they could use to imprison anybody who stepped out of line. But we had the passing of cybercrime decrees, we had the passing of anti-terror legislation, and again, these weren't, these weren't exactly necessary, but what they allowed the Gulf states to do was to frame the situation as something else. So cybercrime laws are about tackling pornography online or you know, indecent images, but in there you've got these really harsh provisions on, on free expression. Anti-terror is the age-old tactic of classifying your, um, you know, your enemies, your critics, dissidents as terrorists. So not necessary, but essential to, you know, to, to framing the narrative that they wanted to, to put forward. The surveillance element of this has been fascinating, I think. If any of you have iPhones, I'm, I'm sure some of you do, back in August you, you probably got an update, a software update, um, because there was a flaw uh, in the Apple's security system. Now we know about this because the United Arab Emirates spent $1 million, we believe, technology experts believe, 
in attempting to hack the phone of the, the activist who, who, who Tim referred to earlier, Ahmed Mansour. Um, now, Ahmed Mansour was a, was a software engineer, so he's quite a smart guy. So when he got this text, I mean, the funny thing is you spend a million pounds developing the software, but you still have to get the guy to click on it. And of course, he didn't click on it. He sent it straight to the University of Toronto and said, can you guys check this out for me? They checked it out, and, uh, and sure enough, it was Israeli-designed state-level spyware, which led to the interceptor referred to Ahmed Mansour as the million-dollar dissident. He's a very humble guy, uh, but I think even he's quite pleased uh, with that one. The part of the report that we're very satisfied with, and incidentally, the report's author, Adam Kugel, is, is here as well today. I, I just assisted. Um, I think I came up with the title. That was, that was about it. But the 140 characters, obviously 140 people have been subject to this, this crackdown. And part of that really was to, was to try and show solidarity um, with these people, with people like Mariam, Mariam's sister, uh, and others in the report. And also to, to scotch the myth that the Gulf is a place where there is no political activism. Of course there is. I'll just end with a, a story about Mariam's sister, Zainab, which is my, my favourite story of, of, of all of these. I think it was in 2014, Zainab was in court, and she was in court to face a charge of ripping up a photo of the king, King Hamad of Bahrain. So the judge walked into the courtroom. Zainab stood up, walked towards him, pulled out another photo of the king and ripped it up again and the judge turned on his heels with, with sort of cartoon steam coming out of his ears and walked out those are the type of people whose, whose courage whose activism that we wanted to, to publicise and to support with this report one final note on, on the advocacy we are here today we were at LSE on, on Wednesday we're going to go to Georgetown and, and hopefully New York University um, later on it's very difficult doing advocacy on the Gulf states. They're so closely allied to the Western powers who, who we often go to to support our work and our recommendations that we don't, there's no traction there. Um, so we need to look for other actors to engage other actors on these issues to get people interested in that. And, and that's why we came to, to Oxford today. Um, so I'll, I'll hand over to Mariam now. Thank you very much, Mariam. Thank you all for coming here tonight, uh, I'm sure. It's not always people's favorite thing to do on a Friday evening, uh, so I do appreciate it. In Oxford, it is actually. I stand corrected. <laughs> so I, w I wanted to start by giving you some background about the situation of freedom of expression in the Gulf, but especially in Bahrain. But before I do that, I wanted to say how disappointed I am that Iyad couldn't make it here today, who's not just my colleague, but also my friend, and someone who has had to go through so much to be able to get to Norway and seek refuge uh, from the UAE. And one of the, th one of the reasons that his case and the fact that he wasn't able to get a visa to get here today is so important is because censorship is also about access. Uh, a lot of times when we talk about censorship, when we talk about lack of freedom of expression, we, we talk about the conventional tools of silencing people, whether it's you know targeting them online or imprisoning them or whatnot. But I think access is something that we don't necessarily always bring up as a tool of silencing people or uh, stripping them of their right for, to freedom of expression. But it is a very important tool, and especially recently with seeing the visa bans uh, that are happening or lack of access to places like the United States, but now also here in the UK and other spaces. And 
for dissidents or human rights activists not being able to come to spaces like these to speak about what's going on in their countries, that in and of itself is a form of censorship. And so I just wanted to point that out before I begin. When we're talking about the state of the state of freedom of expression in Bahrain, obviously the situation has deteriorated a lot since 2011 and the beginning of the uprising in Bahrain. And what happened in Bahrain had a ripple effect, as Nick already mentioned, in the rest of the Gulf states. Because, um, as also, Nick stole all of my talking points, by the way. But as Nick also mentioned, because they were so afraid that an uprising in Bahrain, especially if successful, would then lead to other uprisings in other Gulf states. This is why when we took to the streets in Bahrain and we were at the Pearl Square, we knew that we weren't fighting one government. We were fighting six governments. So it was the Bahraini people against the six monarchies of the GCC countries. And that obviously makes it a lot more of a struggle than if we were just facing the monarchy in Bahrain. But when we're talking about the tools of censorship or the tools of uh, shutting down freedom of expression, like I said, there are many different tools that are being used. Now, of course, prison is one of the main ones. In my father's case, the case of the Bahrain 13, for example, even though it was a case that was tried in military court and it was used or tried under the terrorism law and they were charged with things like attempting to violently overthrow the government um, and so on. Uh, but if you look at the details of the case, which is something Human Rights Watch actually published a report about, the majority of that case was based on the issue of freedom of expression. It was going after them for things that they had said at the Pearl Square or otherwise where they were you know, asking people to demand their rights or, or supporting people in their demand for rights and the struggle for a representative government. Um, so that's, of course, one form that they've been using is imprisonment, torture, and so on. But we've also seen other types of tools being used in Bahrain. One of them is defamation campaigns. And so what the government will do is they will start targeting individuals and doing defamation campaigns in the form of whether it's online targeting. So they have these bots online, especially on Twitter, where you have hundreds of tweets being sent out um, about pretty much the same topic. And we've seen them do this, for example, at events. So I remember I spoke at an event called the Oslo Freedom Forum in Norway in 2011 or 2012. And there was a hashtag for that event. And if you clicked on the hashtag, all you would see was tens and tens of tweets saying Maryam al-Khawaja is an Iranian agent or Maryam al-Khawaja is a terrorist. And so they know, from the Bahraini government's perspective, they know that for us as activists, our strongest tool and our strongest weapon in our activism is our credibility. If our credibility is shot, our ability to do our human rights work becomes a lot less likely and a lot more limited. And so what they try to do is to take away your credibility, to limit you from being able to be in those spaces, to speak about what's happening in the country. So these defamation campaigns, of course, don't only stop at the extent of social media, but they also go beyond that. So they've done television shows um, on Bahrain TV and otherwise, where they again try to portray us as terrorists, as you know, anti-women's rights, anti-migrant rights, and so on. And then they'll do more targeted videos. So there's actually, my favorite one is a video online called Letters from Bahrain. And it starts with this one woman saying, Dear Maryam, Zainab, Abdul Hadi, and Nabil. So myself, my dad, my sister, and Nabil, who's our colleague. And then she starts by saying, I will not identify myself because I am afraid that you will send uh, your goons to attack me in my home. 
And so to protect myself, I won't identify who I am. But if you look at the video, it is so well done in trying to promote us as terrorists, as extremists, that if you don't know the context of Bahrain, if you don't have any background, it sounds very believable. Um, And they spent a lot of money publishing these kinds of videos to try and take away our credibility, to limit us, and to limit our ability to um, have access to public spaces to speak about the situation in Bahrain. Other types of uh, tools that we've seen is uh, disrupting events. So other than you know attacking hashtags and so on, they will actually show up during events that we're doing or on panels that we're speaking and will try to disrupt the events. And my favorite example of that one was um, I was testifying at the U.S. Congress a few years back with actually Nick's colleague was there, Joe Stork, as well. And as soon as I started speaking about the situation in Bahrain, there was an editor of one of the newspapers in Bahrain who, came, who flew out all the way to D.C. just to be at that event. And as soon as I started speaking, he stood up and started screaming that he has a picture of me with Khomeini, and that proved that I was an Iranian agent. And so they'll do the, that type of thing to also try to stop us from speaking out. And then, of course, something that Nick already mentioned as well is the spyware and the malware. Now, what makes the Gulf states very good at the use of spyware and malware is that they have a lot of money. They don't necessarily have the brains or the the technology to develop it themselves, so they usually buy it from EU-based companies. And what they do then is they try to infect our devices uh, with the spyware to take over the device. They can then switch on your mic and your camera and listen in on your conversations. They can videotape you in your own home. But they can also track you and see where you're going. Um, And so they've been using that a lot to try and target activists, especially in regards to finding things out about their personal lives that they can then use on social media to try, again, to ruin their credibility both locally and internationally. We've also seen some changes that have happened since you know, the past couple of years that have made the situation for freedom of expression much worse. Now, the two main legal methods that they have used to target uh, activists especially, but also dissidents generally, in regards to freedom of expression are two main things. The insulting the king law, which previously you would get two months up to a year uh, imprisonment if you are seen to have insulted the king in any way or form. And unfortunately, um, the king of Bahrain seems to have very thin skin, which means he gets insulted by a lot of things that you can say. But what they did in the beginning of 2014 is they changed that law to being, or the, the sentence for that law to being minimum two years, maximum seven years imprisonment sentence if you're found guilty of insulting the king. And this is something that they've been using a lot, especially against activists. As as an example, myself, I have two current charges of insulting the king on Twitter, uh, where I could get up to 14 years in prison combined. Um, But this is also something that they've used against multiple activists. So most Bahraini human rights defenders that you meet will have at least one case where they're charged with insulting the king, whether on Twitter or offline. And the other law that they've been using is the terrorism law. Now, the terrorism law in Bahrain is so vaguely defined um, and has been internationally criticized by international organizations and so on because even the work of a human rights defender can be considered terrorism under that law. So merely, for example, criticizing the police or the actions of police or documenting the actions of police can be regarded as terrorism because you, you would be seen as supporting violence against police. And so the terrorism law, as you can imagine, actually means that you get much higher sentences, up to life sentences and the death penalty. And we saw this, for example, in my father's case with the other Bahrain 13, where many of them were sentenced to life imprisonment, which they're still currently serving in Bahrain. 
And unfortunately, what we've seen recently is that it's gone even beyond just the typical methodologies and the conventional tools of targeting activists. My colleague, Sayyid Ahmed, who actually lives here in the UK as a refugee and who has previously been shot in the head uh, and almost killed, has been imprisoned and tortured and came to the UK to seek refuge with his family. What they're doing now to try and silence him because of the amount of work that he's been successful in actually pressuring the government with is now they're targeting his family inside Bahrain. They can't get to him through all of the tools that I've already mentioned, so they're going after his family. And so what they've done is first they arrested his brother-in-law, who was then reportedly tortured, and he was told during that torture that this is to get back at Sayyid Ahmed for the work that he's doing. And then they arrested his mother-in-law, who's now received 30 days pending investigation, detention uh, from the public prosecution. And you can imagine that for a lot of us as activists, if we're targeted, I mean, I've been to prison Many of my family members have been to prison. Most activists I know have been to prison. And for us, it's a badge of honor, and it's something that's quite expected with our field of work. But it's a completely different issue and a completely different situation to have to deal with your family members being targeted, especially when it's your mother or your mother-in-law, to know that she's being dragged from one interrogation room to another and being put in a prison cell because of the activism you're doing makes it a whole... I mean. Even your reaction and your ability to cope with the situation is very different. And we're expecting that if they're successful in silencing Sayyid Ahmed by using this methodology, then they'll probably start going after all of our families that are in Bahrain to try and silence the rest of us as well. The last point that I wanted to make before I hand over is the international scope of what is happening in Bahrain. Now, the Bahraini monarchy would not be capable of doing what it does without its Western allies. The fact that it is able to buy spyware, arms, the way that it's able to do business as usual with the United Kingdom and with the United States is one of the main reasons why the monarchy has survived until 2017. And the reason why I'm saying this is because, you know, in 2011, 2012, I would have probably said that, you know, the United Kingdom turns a blind eye and a deaf ear to what happens in Bahrain. Today, that would no longer be what I would say about the United Kingdom's relationship with Bahrain. On the contrary, I would say that the United Kingdom not only enables but supports the Bahraini government in doing what it does. And I say this because we have seen time and time again the United Kingdom's government doing a better PR job for the Bahraini government than the 13 PR companies that the Bahraini government employed to do PR for them internationally. We've seen members of the British government coming out and say, well, we've seen no evidence of torture in Bahrain. After a Bahraini independent commission of inquiry actually documented torture that in some cases led to the death of the victim inside the prisons. We've also seen the UK uh, recently, actually right now, in the Human Rights Council session that's happening at the moment, there's a statement that's being pushed through at the Human Rights Council by Switzerland. And the United Kingdom refused to sign the statement, citing that it did not provide enough language on the progress that Bahrain is making right now. Progress that is translated on the ground of seven people so far having been extrajudicially killed since the beginning of this year alone. In a situation where there's no longer any freedom of expression, where civil society space has pretty much been completely shut down. This is the progress that the United Kingdom thinks the Bahraini government is making. And so I think that one of our biggest obstacles for us as civil society in Bahrain has become the United Kingdom and its foreign policies. We can no longer say that you know, Western countries really 
take human rights and, and uh, democracy as the cornerstone of their foreign policy. Because we've seen on the ground that their actions speak louder than their words. And what their actions say is that they're willing to support oppressive monarchies and oppressive dictatorships if it means that their economic and security business goes on as they would like it to. Thank you. Thank you very much. Toby. Thank you very much um, to, to both of you. Um, I would like to continue um, uh, you know, with uh, Marianne's last point and emphasize that we're not talking here you know, from a position of moral superiority um, on, these, uh, you know, on what's going on in the Gulf. And perhaps more than with other countries in the regions that developments in Europe, uh, particularly in the UK and in the Gulf, are very much intertwined. So um, as the two speakers have mentioned, all of the spyware and, and surveillance uh, technology, for example, that has been used and that is documented in this report um, is uh, um, what comes either from Europe, the United States, or in that case even from, from Israel. And um, uh, on some level, we only see in the Gulf, we see developments perhaps a bit earlier than, than you know, they then become apparent in other parts um, of the world. There was, for example, I think a few years ago, a case where uh, a UAE official said, well, BlackBerry, uh, we can't, uh, you know, we want to have the source code for the BlackBerry because we, you know, that everybody else is also looking at that. We just don't have it. And then there was a huge outcry and said, oh, the UAE are really evil because they do all of that. And then later we found out that, well, you know, the five eyes had been doing that, you know, well, since the inception of that phone. And the Gulf governments just wanted to be on, on level playing fields. And I think that is actually um, quite interesting if we look at um, Twitter as a, as a kind of space that has emerged for, for debates and that, you know, I think in, the, in, in some of the years, particularly 2011, actually was a very exciting space, not only in the Middle East, but, you know, worldwide, where um, protests were organized, debates occurred. And now, 2017, we're in a situation where the most influential and loved and hated tweeter is the president of the United States. Um, in fact, as a long-term tweeter, I think we can say he uses Twitter very effectively, doesn't he? I mean, he, he does exactly what you're supposed to do, being very provocative and, and, and just, you know, targeting. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, he, he's very good at tweeting, and that's really the problem. So we've moved from, from a situation where Twitter was in some ways a kind of space deliberation, uh, a kind of public sphere where, well, debates between different social groups could be, could be held and to a certain extent also where public opinion could be influenced and, and changed to one where really in most cases governments uh, have uh, re-established control over this space um, very effectively. So I think the Gulf case is just, is just a sharp edge um, uh, of, of, that, um, of that development, which is a global development. One thing that the speakers mentioned is that, for example, you have automated trolling, and, and, and as you mentioned, you know, suddenly there's a hashtag and then you have 10,000 accounts which say exactly the same thing. That is really something that the Gulf government-affiliated groups and, and agencies have been the first, I think, to, to really use very effectively on a massive scale, but it has later now you know, emerged in, in many other uh, contexts. And um, therefore... It is really, you know, something that concerns um, us, us all. And it is also particularly relevant because the Gulf states um, are becoming so much more important on a regional level and on a global level. Um, and have, you know, they have increased in importance over the last few decades with uh, enormous um, uh, transfer of wealth to these uh, oil-producing countries. 
and the emergence of some of the Gulf um, states, particularly the UAE as a global hub for um, finance, uh, the flow of people, goods, um, airports, um, uh, ports, and so on. And these uh, developments will not stop. So the importance of these states will rather increase than decrease. And their influence in the region has also increased massively. And therefore, you know, they have started to um, play an important role in, in most of the conflicts in the Middle East and in most of the countries um, in the Middle East and have started to be more assertive in their foreign policy, and um, which in some cases has been very destructive. And so it is really quite important to understand the domestic politics of these countries and to see how, well, how they organize their societies and how they deal with uh, criticism. Um, you know, it is something that is very important. And now when we come back to where we're sitting here, we're, we're still in the UK, or aren't we? But in this strategy of the Brexiteers, you know, Commonwealth 2.0, as we've been told um, uh, this week, um, the Gulf states play a key role. They're the first link of the, whatever, the new Commonwealth that is supposed to uh, be, be ruled from London or, or that is supposed to help Britain leave the European Union without devastating economic um, crisis. And uh, the Gulf governments are really key here. And so I think um, while you know, there had been at the beginning in 2011, um, I wouldn't say Britain has played a terribly positive role in, in, in terms of its you know, Gulf foreign policy, there was a sense that uh, a certain emphasis on human rights, on the rule of law, and, um, well, to a certain extent, free speech was still, I mean, it was still part of the the debate, at least, or it was, it was one factor that featured in, in policy making. But I think as we move uh, ahead um, towards the kind of new Middle East foreign policy and, and particularly Gulf policy that sees really the Gulf and Gulf investments in the UK as perhaps the most important um, source of, of really finance and you know, the economic ties in a, in a post-EU world, we're really seeing that um, this, this whole aspect of, of things is really uh, almost completely abandoned. And I think that is really uh, of great concern, should be of great concern, not to only to us who work on the Gulf, but really to, to all of us, because this is now something that is so intertwined also with British politics that, well, I think we cannot uh, ignore it. So without um, further ado, I hand it back to you. Thank you very much, David. Well, before I throw it open, could I just pick up a couple of broader points? I mean, firstly, the one about UK foreign policy, which I think is a very important one. I'm not sure it's absolutely right to say that this follows directly from Brexit, because if you look at the policy under David Cameron and George Osborne, it was already highly commercial, so that, for example, yes, the so-called golden era with China, Xi Jinping, meant absolutely downgrading the conversation about human rights and democracy. But I think the point is correct, and I'm interested to hear you say this, that this has been reinforced by Brexit. Because if you look at Theresa May traveling around the world like a saleswoman, uh, from Donald Trump to Recep Tayyip Erdogan to whatever the next stop is, the claim is that Britain has become more sovereign. In fact, in effect, we have become less sovereign because we are more dependent on these governments and therefore she is less able and willing to raise human rights and say Angela Merkel, who's supposedly not sovereign. So I think that's... An, but I'd like, I hope we can explore the point about UK foreign policy further in the discussion. Second general comment, you know, looking across sort of work on free speech across the world, it, wherever you look, 
the uh, repression of free speech is justified in the name of national security and anti-terrorism. I mean, it is absolutely the blanket justification that one encounters, whether it's Narendra Modi in Italy, in, in India, sorry, in India, uh, branding all his enemies as uh, anti-national and uh, fostering sedition, or whether it's Erdogan, who again, journalists become prop prop propagandists for terror because they've written about the PKK, wherever you look. So this is one more instance of a general phenomenon, and I think it's an important point that casting it in these terms, national security and anti-terrorism, provides a fig leaf for governments who don't want to raise a fuss, a stink about human rights and democracy, right? They may not believe it themselves, very often they don't, but it provides a fig leaf. The question I wanted to pursue, and then I want to throw it open for discussion, is the one about spyware, surveillance, malware, trolling bots. The effect of, of a connected world of the internet is that the whole communicative infrastructure of the public sphere, both globally and nationally, is provided on the internet and to a large degree by private companies. And what we see everywhere is private companies selling this kind of software to dictatorships. Actually, on the website, we have a very interesting interview with Mois Chakchuk, the former head of the Tunisian Internet Agency. And he tells us that before the Arab Spring, under Ben Ali, they were being asked to test surveillance software from Western companies to see how well it worked. And then when they proved you know, proof of quality, it was working well, then they could sell it around the world. Um, so they were actually being used for that purpose. Now you say Israeli surprised, EU-based companies, and so on. And this is absolutely typical. So the significant actor in this, at the intersection of international relations and human rights, is these private companies. And I think an interesting question to explore is whether one could not extend the kind of dual-use provisions which were developed in the context of arms control. So as you know, in the context of arms control, there was always a question of certain technologies which would be dual use. There has been some discussion of this, but I think if one were trying to, beyond naming and shaming the particular companies, which I think is a very good thing to do, I think if you were trying to think of it in terms of an international regime, I don't know if you, any of you on the panel have had any thoughts about that, pursuing the the, the path of trying to get uh, international understandings on dual use of information technology. I don't know if anyone would like to comment on that. Sure. Um, that's actually been a very, that's been, that's been a question that we've been working around a lot because we know that the Bahraini government, for example, was using Confisher and Gamma spyware, which is a German-British company, if not mistaken, to target activists in Bahrain. And we had evidence that there was a specific activist, Abdul Ghani Khanjar, who was targeted by the spyware, then arrested and tortured. And he was presented during interrogation with paperwork, like paper upon paper of his conversations through his phone. And so what we did is we, and this was when I was running the Bahrain Center for Human Rights, we launched the first OECD complaints against Finn Fisher and Gamma. And they tried to, of course, say that it wasn't them and they weren't actually selling spyware and so on. So we got evidence that they were and that they were sending updates to the Bahraini government because obviously the Bahraini monarchy is not smart enough to run that by themselves. 
And we, we won that case. And according to the OECD mechanism, they told us that the decision that they put out in that specific case was the harshest language that they've ever used in an OCD, OECD uh, decision. But when you look at it, it's not even a slap on the wrist because, yes, it says, look, you guys were bad, don't do this again. But at the end of the day, it doesn't actually provide any kind of real accountability to the company, which we had just proved was had aided and abetted in torture. Um, and so it's very problematic when you have a mechanism, which is great for calling out a company, but then there's no real accountability, then there's no real incentive for the companies to stop doing that. And so what we're doing now is we're looking at several different companies, including Hacking Team, uh, especially because of the leaks that happened, and we know that Hacking Team was selling spyware to some of the Gulf countries as well. So we're looking at Hacking Team as well, and we're trying to see, I mean, there are a, lot, there are a bunch of uh, international organizations that are also working on this, uh, and we're working with them, on how do we develop mechanisms of accountability and methodologies and tools of accountability for companies that are based in the EU that are then selling technology to Gulf countries that use it for human rights violations. Thank you very much for a very illuminating panel. Thank you.